Well, didn't George say, what are you doing here or who are you? No, not at the time. There was he didn't? A, no, no. He just uh, had accepted uh, huh. whatever Brian had said. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America. It's the 60th anniversary to the date that the Beatles, well, they came to America. The Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, joins our Wonder Twin Powers to chat about the U.S. album releases this year. So far, we did the intro to the Beatles and meet the Beatles on the day that they were released in America. And we reflected on the podcast that we produced in 2020. We have four more of these episodes of Reflection, and uh, that will be released later in the year as those albums were released in 1964. So what is it today? What are we doing here? Why are we here? Uh, We're gathered today because we have the Beatle guru, Prokalpin, chatting about his personal experiences that time period. When we start an episode of our podcast, we always start out with Brooke Halpin's personal experience. He was there during that time period. That's how we start the show. So we're following suit with this episode where we're asking Brooke Halpin what was his experience during that time period that the Beatles touched down into America. Then we phase into an interview that Brooke Halpin had on his own show. The show is called Come Together with Brooke Halpin and the Beatles. And he interviewed a gentleman named Bob Wilde. Yada, yada, yada. He's in a hotel room with George Harrison after the Carnegie Hall show. So we are, we're going to listen to an edited version of that interview. And you can hear someone's really exciting experience as it magically happened right in front of them uh, during that time period where the Beatles came to America. It's a really interesting interview with Bob Wilde, and it was it was previously aired years ago when Brooks uh, come together with Brooke Halpin and the Beatles. The podcast that we created, The Beatles Come to America, as a long-form, you know, limited edition podcast can be heard on over 18 different platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, you, you name it. If you're listening to this show on YouTube, Uh, The Beatle Guru has offered up some really rare and interesting pictures of the Beatles during that crazy time period that, well, you take a look at and enjoy the program. I'd always recommend that you subscribe to Brooke Halpin's Facebook page, and the link is in the show notes. He seems to always find these rare and interesting pictures that I've never seen before. Today is another special day. I got Brooke Halpin, the Beatle Guru, right here with me who lived through the Beatle explosion. He was old enough to explain how it all went down. So let's talk to Brooke and see what had happened during that time period, 60 years ago. (laughs) Hi, Tom. Nice to see you. (laughs) Wrap my mind around the 60-year thing. I mean, come on. It doesn't seem possible, but it is. It's 60 bloody years since when it happened, you know? So... Let's talk about it. We, we're doing updates to the six shows that we did that land in 1964. More as a recap as to what we thought about the, the episode that we did about the, the album itself. And now, you know, the Beatles came to America. That's the name of our podcast and radio show. And now we thought, well, the Beatles really did come to America. They started on February 7th. I wasn't there. I wasn't even thought of as of yet. <laughs> but you were so i was definitely there so yeah so when i when i did a lot of some research on this i thought it's pretty well documented and i almost felt like i was going to insert what was already done but i got you who was there so i want to kind of beat your brain into 
how was that experience for you? And you remembered it on February 7th. February 7th. Okay. It was a Friday. I happened to be home from school sick with a cold, just coincidentally, you know, and sitting on the couch and my mother and I, we were watching a, a very popular TV afternoon TV show called Queen for a Day. You know, when they would give away washing machines and prizes and things like that. And if the woman became the queen for the day. So we're watching this. And then it was a dreary, gray, cold February on the 7th of February, 1964. And, you know, we were just enjoying watching the show. And then all of a sudden there was a news bulletin, which interrupted the show. And my mother and I, we didn't know what to think because just about three months prior, when the news bulletin came in, it was a terrible news bulletin. It was about our president, John Kennedy, getting shot in Dallas. So we had no idea what we're going, what we're going to see. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I see this big airplane come coming in to land and and there's a, an announcer and he's oh I'm here at JFK and here comes Pan Am and here uh, they're coming up now and uh, then the door opens up you know they had this back then they had they didn't have jetways they had stairs so they had to move the stairs to the door and the door pops open and then these four guys pop come out of the door and they're standing at the top of the stairs. And then the camera pans off to the left. And I saw thousands and thousands of screaming girls screaming. And I had no idea why they were screaming. And so their beetles are waving and I'm looking at these guys, you know, with these funny haircuts. I wasn't quite sure. I didn't even know who they were really. I didn't know who they were. I may have heard something. I may have heard a song with me on the radio, but I wasn't really sure who these four guys were. Now, what's interesting is while the Beatles were on the plane and they were coming to America for the first time, they did not know if they were going to be well-received or not. They had no idea. They didn't know if they were going to be popular. (laughs) Can you believe it? And then, of course, when they saw that type of reception, they thought, well, you know what? Maybe we're going to be all right, (laughs) kind of thing. Uh, All right. So they did the newscast and they came down and, you know, cameras going left and right, taking photographs and everything. And that was the seventh. And then they did a press conference. But I don't know if that, to be honest with you, I don't know if that was included in this a news bulletin or not. I'm not sure. I don't think it was. I don't think so. So then we went back to Queen for a day and some woman won a washing machine, you know, and and then and that was what happened on the Sabbath. And I kept asking my mother, I said, well, you know, what what's this with the Beatles? You know, and there was an article in the local newspapers, you know, that said that they were going to be on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday. And I'm going, oh, okay, but I didn't still didn't know, like, why were the girls screaming? So that was my February 7th 
fortunately being home from school to actually witness the the whole event with them landing for the first time at JFK coming off the plane. Yeah, they actually uh, had a promoter who was doing all the merchandise who did a a great setup. He's going to give everyone a dollar who showed up along with a free T-shirt. And and that generated some of the buzz, but the buzz was really there by the music. There was by this time there was two albums uh, already out, and, and uh, the music was already you know permeating the air. So oh yeah, yeah, especially Murray Decay, you know, in New York City, the radio station. Uh, I think it was uh, WABC, if I recall correctly, with Murray Decay. I mean, the, the people in New York were blanketed with. Murray Decay and, and the radio stations playing Beatles songs prior to their arrival at JFK on the 7th. Yeah. They also had a, a Sullivan rehearsal on, on the yeah, 8th. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they had the rehearsal. Um, now, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, you probably do. George was very sick. Yeah, he was very sick. So when they did the rehearsal, Someone stood in for George when they did the rehearsal. Do you know who it was? You probably do. No, I don't. It was their road manager, Neil Aspinall. Okay. Yeah. So you could imagine how exciting that must have been for Neil. Now, there he is. He's got George's Gretsch guitar on and he's on he's on a stage of the Ed Sullivan show, you know. So, yeah, that Neil, Neil got that position, which is very fortunate for him. And then there's a lot of photographs, um, which I have, of the Beatles in Central Park. But it's just John, Paul, and Ringo. Because George, unfortunately, was back at the Plaza Hotel nursing his cold. He couldn't go out and hang out with the Beatles in Central Park, which, of course, is right across the street. For those of you in New York, you know this, right across the street from from the Plaza Hotel. And there was high security at the Plaza, very high. I mean, dozens and dozens of, I don't know how many policemen were out there kind of protecting the Beatles and making sure that, you know, all the screaming girls were not going to cause any damage. Uh, So that's a little more information for you there. Yeah. The uh, so we're at February 9th where it's the Ed Sullivan show. How uh, did you? What was your thoughts? Did you gather around the TV like they, the people have said? <laughs> yeah. Well, back then, in the early '60s, the Ed Sullivan show was the number one variety show on television. There were a number of them, but the Ed Sullivan show was the big one. So typically. That particular February 9th, 1964, we are my mother, father, my my little oldest, oldest sister and myself. We gathered around the TV, which was a black and white TV set, because that's all what most people had back then. Mm-hmm. It was a Philco, as a matter of fact. And I sat on the floor close to the TV because I had... I was getting really excited about seeing these guys again. And of course, you know, Ed Sullivan came out and he did his famous, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, 
uh, here are the Beatles. And of course, the people in the audience, the girls went absolutely crazy, you know, went absolutely nuts. Again, more screaming, more screaming. And then they did All My Lovin', which was the first number. And close your eyes and I'll kiss you, you know. And the the thing that blew me away and millions of other people is that the Beatles were singing about love. The songs uh, were positive songs. And the energy was something so unusual that it blew everybody away. The combination of the love songs, the positive messages, P.S. I love you, I want to hold your hand, she loves you. These are, when you're a teenager, that these messages are really, really powerful. And the Beatles, they did that, and they probably knew that. They probably knew that. So when they did those songs and then they had the different look, the different haircuts, the the accents, I mean, their accents, you could hear their accents every now and then. And it was so different and so exciting. They created so much excitement for me. And I believe the number is 73 million other people watched the Ed Sullivan show that day, which is staggering. And supposedly there's a statistic that says that during the time when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, not one crime was reported uh, occurred in New York City, <laughs> which is really a pretty fascinating statistic, if it's true. It probably is. I guess even the crooks and the robbers decided, hey, the Beatles are going to be on, so look, I'm going to stay home. And instead of robbing a bank, I'm going to watch the Beatles on television. I'm not quite sure. But anyhow, so so they went through, they did the, their numbers. And now I was like, okay, I want to be a Beatle. I have to be like them. I don't want to be like anything else. I I had a chemistry set in my basement, and I thought, because I really liked chemistry, and I was thinking as I got older, I would become a chemist. <laughs> but, but as soon as this happened, I never touched the chemistry set again. And I saw the chemistry between the four Beatles, and it was magical. There was a magic chemistry, of course, that existed between the four of them. The next day, which would be the 10th, I, the morning before I went to school, I combed my hair down over my forehead to have a beetle haircut. And I used to wear a lot of sport coats back then, and I still do. And I took the collar and I... I turned the collar inside, so I had like a collarless, <laughs> trying to look like a collarless jacket, and I went to school, and some a lot of people were laughing at me, and I was sent down to the principal's office, and I thought, oh, God, you know, what's happening now? And the principal told me, he said, you get that hair off your head, off your forehead. You know, what do you think you're doing? I said, well... I saw the Beatles last night on the Ed Sullivan show. I, I, I said, didn't you see them? He goes, oh, no, I don't, I don't watch variety shows. 
So mm-hmm. straighten up or otherwise I'm going to call your parents. So I had to, I had to take my hair off my forehead. So, but at that point, I saw the excitement. I saw how girls were responding to them. And I knew that I had to get a guitar and that I had to form a band. And that I, by the way, I did all that soon after the Ed Sullivan show. You know, eventually I finally got a band together. And we were like the local Beatles cover band in Connecticut. And we used to play in in Connecticut, Massachusetts and New York. And and we were not only having a lot of fun, but we were very, very successful. You know, we backed up the Isley Brothers and things like that. Um, And we played um, at a lot of fraternity parties and and et cetera, et cetera. But getting back... um, to February, that would be February 10th now. Um, so I did get a guitar soon after that. My sister had a friend who was selling his guitar and I got a guitar. So now it's the 11th. It's February 11th, 1964. The Washington Coliseum. The Washington Coliseum, that's right. Now what happened, there was a huge snowstorm that occurred and it all flights from any of the new york airports they were canceled the planes were grounded so the beatles had to take a train from new york down to dc and uh, again i've got some pretty cool photographs uh, of them on that train and they when they got to dc they played at the Coliseum. Now, the Coliseum was used for boxing events so that the stage was in the middle of the Coliseum, right? So no matter where they were facing, there was audiences all four sides of them. So they felt terrible that, you know, their backs were toward a number of screaming fans. So <laughs> at different times during the show, I don't know if you ever seen the videos of this. Have you seen the videos of this, Tom? No. No, no there's videos of this. And you can see they have their amplifiers, you know, facing one way and the microphones are there and then Ringo's behind them. And then they go through a number of songs and I believe the opening number was Roll Over Beethoven by George Harrison. And, but then after they played a while, they felt really bad. So between numbers, Ringo was, is, he was on a, a circular platform. Some stagehands came out and they turned his drum kit around and they, and then the Beatles and the stagehands, they turned the Beatles amplifiers to the other side of the ring it was really very bizarre it was not of this is the beatles first live performance in america and of course back then the sound system there was the pa system was set up for a boxing match right so the, the sound systems were were not adequate but they did the show and uh, of course, the audience went crazy and, and everybody loved them. Uh, so I was not there. I couldn't get down to D.C. I was too young to, you know, to go down there. 
But that was the 11th. And then the next day, they're back at, in New York. They're back at the plaza. As far as I know, there's no video of that um, live at Carnegie Hall. I, don't, I think they, they didn't bother doing it. I have a lot of photographs of that. And a couple things. George Martin wanted to record that concert. But the American Federation of Musicians, the New York City Union, would not allow him to do it. He was pretty PO'd about that, but he couldn't do it. Now, the reason why the Beatles played Carnegie is because of one man, the man who brought him to Carnegie. Do you know who that might be? You probably do. Sid Bernstein was an impresario. He was a very, very cool, very established man in the entertainment business. He had met Brian Epstein in November of 63 when Brian came over. Brian came over in November. He met, he met Sid. And that's when they made the deal to get the Beatles into Carnegie Hall. They did uh, two shows at Carnegie. And the interesting thing is, is that when Brian came over in November, he was looking for someone to promote the Beatles, like you said. So he went up to an office on 57th Street, and there happened to be someone who is now a close friend of mine, and he was a record promoter. That's what he did for a living. And uh, he's, um, he's quite a bit older than me. But the point is, is that Brian came into his office and he presented the Beatles to him, along with Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, which was another band that Brian was managing at the time. Thank you for listening to this special Beatles Come to America episode. We will be back together, the dynamic duo, the Beatle guru, and myself later in the year to chat about more releases from 1964. Now, here is the interview of Brooke Halpin and Bob Wilde. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Come Together with the Beatles. I'm your host, Brooke Halpin, and I have a very exciting show for you today. I have a very special guest, and that's record producer, singer-songwriter Bob Wilde, and he's going to share some experiences he had with the Beatles and George Harrison. Bob, welcome to Come Together with the Beatles. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Brooke. It's a pleasure, and uh, we're talking about pretty much of a pretty sensational uh, group that had a, uh, a very uh, great beginning. Can you please tell me and our audience uh, what it was like when you were sitting there on West 57th Street in early November 1963, and I understand that this was the first time you met Brian Epstein. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And I can describe it for you. I was sitting there. It was probably about 5, 5.30 at night. And uh, I was talking with Mary Gleason, who was the secretary for Archie. And we were just talking when there was a knock on the uh, front door of the office. And uh, so I got up and I went to the door and I opened up the door and I saw these two fellas standing there. And uh, the one fellow said, 
Bud Hallowell here, please. And I looked, I said, sure. And Bud Hallowell was a national promotion man, independent. And he rented one room suite uh, from Archie's office. And uh, so I said, sure, hold on. And I knocked on Bud's door. And uh, Bud opened the door and I said, Bud, these two fellas are here to see you. And uh, they went into the office and uh, I went back to sit with Mary and talk with Mary for another half hour or so. Then... (laughs) About quarter to six, six o'clock, a good half hour later, 40 minutes later, Bud comes out of the office. The two gentlemen leave, and they go out to the front door, and Bud brings his top coat, and he puts his hat on, and he says, geez, do you know who those two fellas were? And I looked, and I said, of course not. I don't know who they were at all. And he said, well, he said his name is Brian Epstein, and he's bringing in a group that's going to be doing the Ed Sullivan show. And he left a whole bunch of records. He says he's a manager and he's got many other groups that uh, are in England doing very well. He wanted to hire me, Bud said, to do his promotion. And Bud was a good promotion man. He was doing Burr Lives and he was doing Brenda Lee and Mm. he was doing some real good uh, national work and had a lot of hits under his belt. So he was hired as an extra promotion help. The two fellas that uh, knocked on the door that evening was a... Brian Epstein and Billy J. Kramer. Ah. And uh, one of the other records that was left on the desk was uh, a Billy J. Kramer record. And he had a recording uh, called uh, I'll Keep You Satisfied. Aha. Uh-huh. And that song, of all the songs, that knocked me out, as well as How Do You Do It. Uh, that, I thought, was uh, very catchy and very pop-orientated. I was told by, uh, by Bud that Capitol was going to be putting out the uh, the I Want to Hold Your Hand uh, in a few weeks, and he was to work on that record to, to promote them. Okay, so let's fast forward now. But now we're getting into January. What happens next in terms of your experience with the Beatles? Well, by then, there was... Uh, Rumor and talk and the buzz on the street, the music uh, streets, Tin Pan Alley, that this group was going to be coming over and they were going to be doing the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, Bud was well informed on what uh, the itinerary was going to be and what the schedule was. And people started knocking on Bud's door. They were T-shirt vendors. They were school book vendors. They were all kind of vendors uh, coming to knock on his door with the group not even being here on America yet, but the buzz was so big mm. that merchandising people started knocking on Bud's door to have him connect them with uh, Brian when Brian uh, was to come here with the Beatles. And so I saw all that activity. In fact, uh, Bud, uh, he elected to uh, start up and make some of his own T-shirts. And he ordered a couple of boxes full of uh, these T-shirts with the Beatles, Fab Four, or whatever the names were at the time that was hot. And the Fab Four was a big, yeah. big, big name that was going on. That's right. They called so, them the Fab Four because yeah. they were the Fab Four. Okay, so now it's February 12th, and that's when the Beatles performed at Carnegie Hall. And I understand uh, you were there backstage. Yes, with, with the boxes, with boxes of these with T-shirts. Boxes of is, T-shirts. Is that That's right? Exactly right. Uh, yes. Please tell us yeah. about that. Well, 
The moment was uh, quite quite fascinating. They had just performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, and America had a chance to see them, and it was an absolute hysteria. If you anybody remembers seeing that, the, the, them perform there on that show, it was just pure pandemonium, mm. squealing girls, 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 and they were just screaming out, John, Paul, tears coming down some of their eyes. I mean, it was just complete rapture of the of the group, and uh, so the excitement was was really high and Sid Bernstein organized a uh, concert for them at Carnegie Hall that they were going to perform in Carnegie Hall well the buzz on the street was uh, was tremendous and so that night that they were going to perform at the Carnegie Hall do a show Bud was of course had a ticket uh, to to to, to a ticket to ride <laughs> uh, which was right across the street from uh, from the office so he said uh, Bobby how would you like to uh, be my assistant Carry these boxes, and we'll go to the Carnegie Hall. We'll get we'll get in and, and see the show. I said, sure. What? Why not? So I put boxes one under each arm, and we walked across the street to Fifty Seventh Street. We walked into the back. Fifty Sixth Street was the entrance, the stage entrance, and we walked through. Police on horseback, <laughs> crowds milling around, photographers, everybody screaming, shouting, trying to get in the little doorway. Well, because Bud had the ticket and I was following him, the police never said anything. They saw his ticket, his little badge that he had, and we walked right through into the uh, back backstage of uh, Carnegie Hall and right up uh, to the stage. And they were performing at the time. The they were performing when you yeah. walked onto the stage. That's right. Do you recall what they sounded like when that happened? When you stepped on that stage with your boxes? Well, it was uh, the stage was was darkened, and uh, I was uh, one of the first times I'd been ever. It was uh, the first time I'd been on the stage of Carnegie Hall, and so the stage was darkened, and the spotlights were shining down on the guys. So they really were in uh, a spotlight. So I saw the the halo that was around them, and they were singing, and. Uh, uh, maybe they were singing Twist and Shout. They were singing some of the original uh, rock tunes. And the uh, girls were throwing uh, jelly beans. I saw these jelly beans in the in the air, like missiles. <laughs> and uh, they were hitting uh, hitting the group and hitting off the amplifier and hitting off the, uh, the drums and uh, hitting off the guitars. And backstage behind them, for the first time I ever saw it, there was an audience behind them uh, sitting there. And there had to be at least 100 under 200 people on the stage on the stage behind them oh yes. my god yeah yeah wow and it turned out i recognized some of the people i recognized it was leonard bernstein and he was with uh, uh jackie kennedy who, oh. was, who was just <laughs> suffered that terrible loss and she yeah. was with her daughter and uh there was a the mayor of new york and so many recognizable people uh, at the time of new york and they were all dignitaries and uh, they were all back back on the stage behind the Beatles watching them perform. Okay, so you had your boxes, you're listening to the Beatles. Now, now listening to them live, did you get a different vibration or a different sensation or a different opinion of the Beatles compared to what you heard on disc back in November of 63? Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> to see any act live is good, and they were good. They were tight. And the spotlights on them, and the suits that they were wearing, and just looking at their haircuts, uh, which was new that beetle the beetle look, and uh, just everything that they had, and the songs that they were performing, and big amplifiers, amplifiers I had not seen uh, being used uh, here in America. 
and the the pandemonium from the women and the, the girls and the, it, whoever was in that audience. I mean, it was just sure scream. It was just like listening to the ocean roar as they're trying to do their songs. But I saw their uh, sincerity of performance, mm. and I saw the excitement. I saw that they were they were professional. They were not afraid of what was happening. They weren't intimidated. It was like they plowed right through it and knew how to turn it on, how to really perform, how the, the George with the Lex that he played on the guitar. They were pure perfection of what the set that they designed uh, to, to do. So I was very impressed with their professional, with their look, and I saw something that I had not seen, probably didn't happen unless you were an old fellow with Frank Sinatra or even uh, more my uh, age group with an Elvis Presley. Never saw anything quite like this uh, with the, when the Beatles... Uh, happen it was an absolute uh, eruption a human emotion uh, emotion and an eruption that was unlike anything that uh, i think the world had seen before so i was very impressed with that what happened next i understand that you weren't able really to communicate with brian did you see brian backstage by the way yes sure we saw brian exactly. yeah but so you, I, did you speak with everybody him? saw a couple of the uh, i guess they're roadies i didn't know it at the time mel evans was probably yeah, there. That, that's right, Mel. I met him later on. Isn't that funny you mentioned his name? Yes. But did you actually speak with Brian? No, 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 no. no. They were. They, it was too too busy, uh, too chaotic. And uh-huh. when they finished their last song, I was standing uh, between them and the stairway to get out uh, to that door, the stage door on Fifty Sixth Street. So I was standing off the stage there, and I finished. They what? They finished their set, and they come whizzing by. They come running by, throwing their guitars on on the floor, and throwing their sticks up in the air, and they just ran down the stairs and into this uh, limousine. I didn't know what it was a limousine at the time, but I was wondering, geez, why are they running away so fast like this? No bows, no 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 ovations, or you know, and thanking the thanking. They just split, and uh, so Bud he said, "Let's get the boxes and." Let's go. We're going to go to the Plaza Hotel, which is where they were staying at the so time. So Bud and you knew that at the time? Yes, Evidently. yes. And we yeah. knew we were going to make a presentation of those those T-shirts with, uh, <laughs> okay. with, with Brian. So you were determined, you and Bud were determined to get an audience with, yes. with Brian. Well, we knew we were going to be seeing him. Yeah. yeah, that was all preset. But we walked down the stairs, and I'm with the boxes, and Bud is walking, and we see the police on the on, mounted on the horseback, and a lot of awful lot of cops and police cars and stuff. And uh, I'm looking, and I see the limousine that they jumped in, obviously, and it was down at Sixth Avenue. They were already down there, and it was just starting to make a turn. As they were going down Sixth Avenue, I looked to my right, and there was one girl, three girls, hundred girls, four hundred girls screaming, running down the streets. John, Paul, George, we love you, we love you, we love you, and just running by. And it's like that's when it dawned on me. Uh, I said, "Wow." This is something. And the police, they couldn't even con- contain them. They, they, they just ran right through the barricades oh, and through they? the horses and yeah, everything like yeah. that. And running towards where that uh, limousine, where those red taillights were going uh, away, they, I don't think anybody knew that they were staying at the plaza, the audience anyway. But uh-huh. anyway, so we walked to the plaza hotel. Okay. And, and, and then uh, once you got to the plaza, yeah. what happened? Well, we, Bud and I talked to talked among ourselves, saying, my God, we never saw anything like this. This was really, uh, really something that was amazing to 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 witness and to be a a, a part of and anyway we went to the uh the plaza and walked walked into the lobby and 
Uh, I'm still holding those boxes. And Bud uh, goes to the house phone and he calls up the uh, the suite where the boys were staying. And uh, we get the okay. We get uh, the room and the floor that we're to go to. And there was only a certain uh, elevator that was allowed to even go to the seventh floor. All the elevators were, were shut. No elevator could go up to the seventh floor except this one elevator. Mm, wow. Yeah, so... That was uh, that was good. So we went into the uh, elevator, and when we got to the seventh floor, the elevator operator, he stopped, opened up the door, and I see nothing but policemen <laughs> looking at us uh, strangely, like, uh, who's he? What are you doing? Hmm. And so Bud said, we're, we were invited to uh, uh, see uh, Brian and the boys. So they let us go, and we went to the, uh, the front door of the suite. They had a whole bank of, of rooms, and we knocked on the door, and uh, Bud opened up the door and uh, looked at uh, Bud and said, oh, hiya, Bud. And then he looked at me and said, who's this? And said, oh, he's my assistant. He's got the uh, T-shirts with him. And he looked at me before he said anything and looked me up and down with his eyes and, okay, he can come in. This so, is Brian Epstein. This is Brian, yeah. Okay. This is Brian. Yeah. So... I passed the scrutiny, I guess, <laughs> and uh, went into the uh, into the suite, and he uh, kept us right there in the foyer. And um, what did you see when you went into that suite? That's what I'm saying. We yeah. walked in, and uh, I still had the boxes, and we had our uh, coats on because it was still cold, and the. Boys were already laying down on the floor, uh, on the living room floor, listening to records. And uh, it was John and Paul and Ringo. Yeah. And then there was these three girls that I recall always seeing uh, in in Manhattan because I was a songwriter and a, a song plugger. Uh, they, we called them the triplets. But... Uh, that was our nickname for them, but they were the Ronettes. The Ronettes yeah. were on the floor with the Beatles. That's right, listening, <laughs> listening, listening to the records. And one of the records I remember was a, was a, you really got a hold on me. Oh, by Smokey, Smokey Robinson. By Smokey. Yeah. Oh, oh. That. Okay, so here I am with Bob Wild, and Bob is talking about his extraordinary experience of actually he was carrying these boxes around for quite some time uh, with the T-shirts. Him and his uh, associate or partner. <laughs> Bud there. They're in the suite of the Plaza Hotel. This is February 12th, 1964. The Beatles had just performed two shows at Carnegie Hall, which Bob witnessed, as you heard about. And now... You're in the suite, you see the Ronettes, and you see the Beatles, minus George. So what happened next, and where was George? I didn't know at the time, but uh, when we were standing there just for the moment, and uh, Brian wanted to talk to Bud, I guess he wanted to talk to him alone, and so he said, uh, excuse me a minute, and he went and he knocked on another door in that suite, and uh, he came back out, and he said, I want you to wait in here, if you would. So talking to me, and uh, so... He opened the door and he uh, let me into this room. It was a darkened room. had two big windows that were uh, uh, in the Plaza Hotel overlooking the Central Park. And uh, it was a bedroom suite. A very big, big, big room. A very large room. And uh, in the bed was uh, George Harrison. Oh. And uh, he had a doctor. He, the doctor was in the room there with a stethoscope. Is that and, right? Yeah, put, putting uh, whatever it was, uh, that little piece of metal on his uh, on his chest to see his heartbeat or whatever. So I guess I found out he had a cold. He yeah. wasn't feeling well. Right. And uh, so he had a cold. And I'm standing looking down at the at Central Park, and I'm 
I'm saying to myself, so this is what Central Park looks like at the plaza. Uh, <laughs> so you're in a room with yeah. a doctor and George Harrison. Yes. Just yeah. the three of you. Just the three. And then there was a knock on the door and a, uh, a waiter came in with a bearing of food. It turned out he had ordered an omelet. <laughs> and so the, the, the waiter came in and uh, set the table down by his bed so he could um, eat his eat his omelet. I guess he was hungry at the time. Well, didn't George say, what are you doing here or who are you? No, not at the time. That was, he didn't? Uh, no, no. He just uh, had accepted uh, huh. whatever Brian had said for me to wait in that room with him. I see. And uh, the doctor was fooling around and the... Uh, I didn't even know. Maybe he even left the room. But I'm looking down at the street, and I'm hearing these screams. George, Paul, John, we love you. We love you. The whole street, 59th Street, is packed with people screaming up at the hotel. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm looking at the George, and I said, boy, you really hit it big. And he said, yeah. And he's poking with his fork into the omelet. And I said... You know, it's uh, it's got to be something for you to uh, uh, come here and accomplish what you what you've done. I mean, you got to feel like a, you know, like the champs of the world. So he asked me, "What I what do you do? What do you do?" Yeah. So I said, "Well, I'm in a group too. Uh, we play very similar music to what you guys are doing here. But uh, you guys got the records. You got you're out here first. I said it's just good to uh, to to see that our music." Is making an impact, and you guys certainly are making a big impact. Well, when you say our music, what do you mean, Bob? Well, the the, the rock style, the the, the four piece uh, band, that the the guitars, and oh, the I drum, see, yeah, and and uh, singing the harmony and just just doing those uh, twisting shouts and uh, the the songs that uh, please please me, the, that type of songs that they were writing and, and performing. Well, it was we were comfortable with each other, but there wasn't much uh, conversation because uh, what do you say to something that was just a phenomenon yeah. that was happening in front? So I was a little uh, tongue-tied and respectful for allowing him to share the, his moment without thinking. I never even dreamed to say, can I have an autograph? That was not even in my my mind. It was just uh, two two fellas. Uh, uh, he's a musician. I'm a guitar player. He's a guitar player. Uh, didn't say what kind of an amp. Yeah, nothing. It was yeah. nothing like that. It was just two human beings that were young fellows and uh, were pursuing to make it on the charts, to hear ourselves on the radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was there first. And he was uh, not, I won't say first, he was there in a big, 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 big way. way. I mean, yeah, this was, yeah. nobody could touch this world sure. other than uh, than an Elvis. Yeah. Uh, very rare uh, heights that, uh, that they hit that right. night. And, of course, they were going to go on to do something huge. Uh, as, as we all know, we right. became oh, witness yeah. to the fact that what the Beatles became. Now, how did you, did did you get a second knock on the door saying it's time to come out? Or yes, that's ex- exactly right. <laughs> what, exactly. What in, that dark, in that dark room, uh, the, the door opened up a crack and I could see the light, <laughs> the sliver of silver light come through. Yeah. And it was like, okay, time to go. And uh, I think it was Brian that uh, that's, uh, waved his finger to me and I said goodbye to George and uh, that was it. And I uh, met Bud right there in the hallway and we... Thank Brian. And I saw that there was more people. When I took a glance over there at the record player, there was more people in the room. Contemporary people. I wouldn't know who they are, but it was uh, rockers themselves. It was American uh, singers and, and people like that that were already in, the, in there with uh, Ringo and Paul and John. And, of course, the, uh, the Ronettes were still there, too. And we left. 
Mm. And we walked through the, the hallway, went down, got to the bottom of the plaza, walked uh, into the streets, and... Uh, Back to the a, office with the boxes? No, no boxes. We left oh, the boxes. Oh, you left the boxes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, so we walked down the street, and uh, Bud looked at me, and I looked at him and said, Wow. What just happened? Well, we're going to fast forward to, was it, was it during the 80s or 90s when you saw George again? I think it was sometime in the 90s. And he has another experience that he had with George Harrison sometime during the 1990s. And was it here in Los Angeles, Bob? It was here in Los Angeles. I had moved from New York oh, many, many years before. And of course, you're talking about when we saw the Beatles. What year was that? 1964? Yes. So it was many, many years. And uh, there was a, uh, a jazz club that I, I still was a music, uh, still involved in the music world. And, what, what were you doing at that time? At that time, I was a, a professional automobile salesman a prof- oh a professional okay a professional automobile high salesman. scale automobile oh, okay exactly so but it was a crowd. jazz club uh, do you remember the name of the yes, jazz club yes yes it was a very famous place in, in Burbank called Chadney's and Chadney's was across the street from NBC uh, studios where Johnny Carson had his uh, TV shows going very famous uh, studio that NBC uh, ran for years and years and years anyway this club had been there a long time it was uh, it's on like a triangular type of an island and it was a, a, a beautifully constructed uh, restaurant and in the downstairs part not a basement but sort of the downstairs uh, there was a, a bar and uh, a two bartender bar so it was big enough and uh, you could eat or drink and just have a good time and they had a beautiful bandstand and all the contemporary jazz acts the older fellas the older jazz acts they were still playing still performing up to the top Earl Palmer. I'm trying to think of so many, so many people uh, that I saw there. Anyway, Emil Richards was uh, was the uh, vibe player. Now, and did you know Emil before this evening? Yes, I did. I, I knew I knew Emil uh, as as a musician, as being a, an audience, being a fan, and uh, struck it uh, with, with him. It was we had mutual friends, and so Emil and I we had become sort of friends, uh, musical friends, because we shared the same musical uh, aspirations. I always was involved in the music world, and uh, so Emil was very comfortable with me, and his set would be a forty five minutes set and he'd get off this dance there, say hello to the different people in the audience and of course he'd hang with me maybe in the in the back for a corner and he would drink his water or drink his uh, the fruit drink uh, I was the one that was the, the drinker not not Hamel but a social drinker mm-hmm. anyway uh so you one, became friends with Emil, just musician to musician? Musician to musician, okay. right, among the many musicians. And so one one night, Emil tells me, he says, uh, listen, Bobby, I've got a special guest coming in tonight. And uh, I like him. I know you stand in the back all the time. Uh, maybe I'd like him to be able to be with you so he doesn't have to be pestered by anybody. I said, oh, oh what, what, who's that? He says, it's George Harrison. I said, George Harrison? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, wow. I said, that's kind of unusual. And he said, well, I used to run a Dark Horse Records for him. I said, come on. Yeah, I did? That, I had no idea. So that was George's record company. That was George's record company. Yeah, and, yeah. And so Emil was uh, was his A&R guy, oh. uh, which is surprising because uh, Emil was one of the great uh, vibraphone Absolutely. people. Absolutely. And, uh, in fact, Emil wrote uh, 
Where the Flintstones? Flintstones. The Flintstones. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I said, sure, I'll keep. I'll make sure we keep a little table, small little table in the back, all the way in the back, and always had a good view. And in the back, you had very good acoustics, so you could hear the band without, you know, too much effort at all. So sure enough, George comes in, and Emil. Walks up to him and he brings him right over to me and says, "George, this is the fellow I was talking about. This is Bob Wild. Uh, sit down there and be comfortable, and uh, uh, I got to finish my set." Uh-huh. So, so he does, and uh, George has a drink. Uh, maybe it's a tall, long, tall water or something. I, I really forget. But he was dressed. He just got back from Hawaii. He was dressed in a white suit, uh, open collar uh, shirt. And uh, he looked good. He looked. He looked like George Harrison, uh, fifty years later. And uh, so, so I reminded him of the story. It's you George, did. Yeah. I got to tell you something. <laughs> he said, so he said, "Well, I remember. I was sick." He said, "I was sick." He said, "But I don't remember too much of the whole event." He said, "We did the TV show and uh, we did those shows." And he said, "It's all just." Uh, it was one one moment after another. So so much time had passed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That he couldn't recall being. He well, guess he recalls no, he being re- sick. Yeah, he remembers, he remembers, he remembers the plaza and he remembers being ill in in the uh, in in the plaza and he remembers yeah, being, yeah. being sick. But he was living in Hawaii at the time and he just flew back from Hawaii and so he shared a story of uh, people in Hawaii. It was that time when the, the indigenous people wanted to reclaim their land. So he was saying that they're knocking my fences down they keep walking through my my plantation so, my, my land so in the Hawaii. people they want to reclaim the land and some of that land belonged to George no no no, no. George's George's land or the property that he had the yeah. home that he had yeah in Maui yeah in Maui yeah. Uh, so the the native the Hawaiian people would just keep on walking through his land because they were claiming that was from their ancestors that nobody, oh I see nobody <laughs> should have private I see. private land <laughs> oh, so he, he had a, there was another problem he was had to deal with Oh, because geez. of uh, you know just just being a landowner and yeah. uh, wanting to just have a place in paradise. And yeah, right. And he's got people running so, all over the place. So we, we we had some jokes about that, you know, and uh, you know, nice camaraderie. And, uh, so it was a nice musical evening. Uh, Emil finished his set, and uh, uh, George stayed for um, into the next set, and uh, so we just did. We just were at peace with each other. Nobody really bothered him. Very few people recognized him because this was a, a, a the jazz crowd, and it so was, it was like an older crowd. Dark room, and, anyway, wasn't and it? And a very dark room. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. So a, be- a beautiful room, actually. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was time for him to go, and I uh, walked out with him, and uh, we called a cab, and we waited outside, and he was smoking a cigarette, and I'm smoking a cigarette. We were smokers at the time, and. And the cab came, and uh, that was it. It was good. well, George. Great seeing you. A nice hearty handshake with each other, and yeah. uh, that's it. Goodbye, buddy. Okay, adios, amigo. Well, how nice. Bye. Very good, Bob. <laughs> well, I know that you you still do keep your hand in music. I know that just from a personal experiences that I have with you recently, and it's fantastic that uh, after all these years that you do keep your hand mm-hmm. uh, in the music business, in the music world, and your stories are amazing. What you've done is, is just spectacular. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this individual here, Bob Wild, I'll tell you quickly before we wrap up, has done some amazing things 
things, the people that he's worked with is just incredible. He's pre-produced the Blues and Magoos. He was in Greenwich Village when everything was happening back in 65. And he's got some uh, incredible stories. And as a matter of fact, I know, Bob, that you're finishing up a book that uh, mm. will be published someday. Yes. What's the name of that book? Someday soon. Uh, the book is going to be called, or is called, 45s Living a Life in the Groove. In the Groove. And Bob Wilde certainly did live the life in the groove that the audience really enjoyed your interview. Yes, I certainly, thank you. I certainly did. 